From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you the FCA's Global Fintech Alliance, SCB's Virtual Banking License, and Simon Gets McCaffeinated. All this and much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with the good people from Microsoft Azure. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London Town. My name is Sarah Koshansky. I'm the Principal Research Analyst here at 11FS, and I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, David Breer and Simon Taylor. How are you guys doing today? I'm pretty well. Been having a lot of fun today. Some client work, interviewing customers, building new bank propositions. It's fun. How all sorts. Yeah, all, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> it's, it's been good. I've been getting my, my next report ready to go out live, which is yeah. very exciting. I, you, I'm David? just depressed about the weather. Like That's the main thing. Like London has took a turn for the worst when it comes to the weather right now. Like I nearly drowned Think trying to get out of Paddington. David. Think I of know. the plants. That's true, yeah. It's, it's so British term, isn't it? Like uh, It's good for the grass. <laughs> we are not alone, however. We are joined in the room, as usual, by some fantastic guests. We're joined by Leslie Ann Vaughan, Director at Miller Consulting. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been a while, Leslie. You haven't. Uh, you've been out and about all over the world, haven't you? But uh, <laughs> as always, yeah, I, I've been away for a couple of weeks in in Nairobi this month. Um, but yeah, I haven't been in the podcast probably for about a year. Indeed, I would say. it's great to have you back. That's yeah, way too you. long. <laughs> um, also by Andy Nelson, who is Vice President of Banking and Financial Markets at CGI. How are you doing today, Andy? I'm awesome. Wonderful. And making your debut, last but by no means least, by Emily Nicole, tech reporter at CTIM. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks. Wonderful. All right. Without further ado, let's get started. So our first story today is the FCA's Global Alliance. Uh, So this story was was all over the place. Um, The article we picked up is from Cointelegraph. And the UK's Financial Conduct Authority creates Global Alliance for Fintech Innovation Collaboration. So the FCA's new alliance, the Global Financial Innovation Network, otherwise known as GFIN, uh, is a collaboration. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh when I say these things. Is a collaboration between 11 financial authorities and related organisations. Uh, it will have the. Do you want to interrupt already? Ain't nothing but a G Fin baby. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I hadn't let you do that. <laughs> I will get back to the serious uh, matter at hand, which is explaining what it does, and then you can you can let all those puns wild. It will have it will have three functions. Um, it's a network of regulators collaborating and sharing experience of uh, their own experiences of innovation, including emerging technologies such as AI and DLT, also business models, which is really interesting. Uh, provide a forum for joint policy work discussions and provide firms with an environment in which to trial cross-border solutions, which is also really interesting. Chris Willard, who's the Executive Director of Strategy and Competition, said GFIN will help organisations harness the benefits of innovation in financial services for consumers whilst managing the potential harm. Um, and this alliance follows on from the FCA's initial consultation on a global fintech regulatory sandbox, which it did earlier this year. And which we actually got the exclusive for on Fintech Insider way back when. Mm-hmm. Very nice. It's a super interesting one, isn't it? Like, uh, again, the FCA being in a situation where they're trying to sort of lead the way with this stuff. So it's it's really good to see that they're doing this. I guess it's the devil's going to be in the detail, similar to what we've sort of seen with a number of the things that have come out from a regulatory perspective, you know, particularly about the, the US fintech charter. 
inverted commas never really work particularly well on podcast, do they? But for everybody out there, <laughs> inverted commas. So, you know, I, I guess this is going to be really interesting to see actually what happens with it. We've seen an emergence of these sandboxes, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, many other places now have quote unquote sandboxes. And this goes alongside the treasuries uh, kind of fintech bridges that they now have with Australia. Uh, there's a definite effort to uh, help with speed to market. I mean, they talk about a lot of things, reg cooperation, governance, platforms and business models. Like there's some knowledge sharing stuff that's nice. But I think the real thing here is if I'm operating in market in the UK, in theory, I can export my business to another market really quickly. So Yeah, I mean, the, the, for me, everybody knows I love RegTech. I'm a bit of a RegTech geek. So this is kind of, to me, the ultimate conclusion of all those fintech bridges they were building. So if you look at the organizations involved, they're ones that work very closely with the FCA. It is, I think it's also this kind of intermediary step to a sandbox because a lot of people got quite upset with the idea of a sandbox. A um, so they've kind of, I think this is kind of a step in the middle and then maybe the next thing they do will be a sandbox. But they sort of thought, all right, well, we'll have an organization and we'll have a chat first and see where it goes. I completely agree with David that the devil is going to be in the details here. I went into the article and I said, well, I wonder what does global mean? Does it actually mean global? And I was really pleased to see that CGAP is part of that. CGAP is a consultative group assisting the poor, they're part of the World Bank, they're an NGO. I work quite a lot with them and they're full of <laughs> super smart people who really think about how these things affect poor people from consumer protection angles to regulatory angles to interoperability angles. And we see a lot of the cross-border issues and the fintech issues come up with, with a lot of this. So <laughs> I'm quite excited to see if it really does pan out in something that is useful in, in emerging markets context. It's, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because like if, if they can get, you know, if you, we think the US struggles sometimes to get state to state regulators mm. to you know play nicely together yeah. actually trying to get you know this is the un for financial services isn't it you know they're, they're essentially trying to get all of these cross borders with different agendas different purposes different uh benefits to be had with it it'll be really interesting to see if they make it work right? and i've been in quite a few of these forums over the years um i've run a, a, a payments conference for regulators in dubai at one point and people want to talk to each other and learn from each other i also been to a south africa conference and sadak regional interoperability initiative with payments and and similarly I can see that people want to make change and they can see that they need to learn from each other and they can see that we don't fit each other our regulations don't fit we have to think about this <laughs> yeah but I think it's as interesting about who's in it as who's not in it as well so um, so we've got France we've got a good mix of uh, western and eastern com- uh, countries but no Germany I think if I was sitting in Berlin, I might be a little bit... Uh, I think that says an awful lot about Bafin. Uh, this would not be the first time they've refused to play nicely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I agree. And what's interesting to me is as well, uh, quite often when you see these fintech bridges, it's uh, bridges with the UK with uh, countries that have regulatory systems based on British law. So Abu Dhabi, Hong Kong, Australia, Singapore, all those places, their regulatory frameworks are the same, not the same, but as basis um, as the UK's, but you know, France's is absolutely not <laughs> based on the same. You know, Ontario in, in Canada as well, and as you said, you know, CGAP are not uh, that kind of organisation. But also consider the politics as well. I think it'll be interesting as well to see how GFIN works in the cryptocurrency space, with especially regulating ICOs like it says it's going to. If you think about how the G20 is doing all their efforts there, they're probably going to have to do a lot of collaboration, a lot of advising on that kind of stuff. So Yeah, there's some efforts um, under the G20, the, under the FSB Secretariat, the Financial Stability Board, to try and harmonize some of this. But it's a real barbell. You've got India and China running in one direction on ICOs, and then you've got kind of the US in the middle, and then Gibraltar, Malta, and these smaller jurisdictions, arguably, uh, with 
quite comprehensive legislation, but also considered permissive, at least optically. Uh, and, and I think this learning thing, whilst it sounds very nice and woolly, actually it means a lot, I think, t- to your point, leslie Ann, that different jurisdictions have different regulatory perimeters. So I might be doing something in the UK that makes me regulated, but in another country I'm not. And if I can be regulated in both of those countries and or at least have a faster way to getting an answer to if I am, then maybe that's good for business, good for my expansion and, and good for financial services. Yeah, I mean, all in all, I think, you know, the more collaboration, the better in this space. I think everybody agrees it's a sort of generally positive step forward. It's just one of those things that we all know that no regulator moves quickly and 11 regulators certainly won't move quickly. But that's enough from us. Uh, we spoke to Anna Wallace, head of the Innovate Department at the FCA, to get her thoughts. Back in February, we launched our idea of a, a global sandbox and the FCA takeover of the Fintech Insider was a big part of that journey in getting out our message on the benefits we saw for greater cooperation between regulators in encouraging um, innovation in the interests of consumers. And for us, we really saw the potential benefits of building on what we'd already done in the UK. And so far, we've accepted over 100 um, applications to test out novel business ideas, with 85 of them already completed their tests. And our sandbox has also helped us as a regulator build in safeguards during a testing period to ensure that consumers are appropriately protected, but also helped us better understand emerging business models to help develop our own policy thinking. But of course, a global sandbox of one is pretty limited in what it can achieve. So, you know, I'm absolutely delighted that in only six months, 12 regulators and related organisations spanning the globe have turned that idea into the Global Fintech Innovation Network, or GFIN, for those of us who are in a hurry. And and GFIN really is um, a collaborative policy and knowledge sharing initiative, looking at advancing the normal things that regulators are interested in, financial integrity, consumer protection, financial stability, but doing that with a focus on innovation in financial services. And we really see the potential um, for it to deliver and facilitate responsible cross-border experimentation of the new ideas. So the the very genesis of the idea, the global sandbox. Um, And I'm really delighted that that GFIN also reflects the broad range of remits of regulators involved. So we have central banks, we have securities regulator um, involved in the process. But the test that we've got to meet um, as a group Um, is to see whether we can work in a more efficient ways to help innovative firms interact with regulators in a better way and to also help regulators to be more efficient in how they understand um, the potential risks and benefits of innovation. So we've got an open consultation until the 14th of October um, to focus people's minds. What we're really looking for is your views on how we can best act as a network of regulators to help you work as efficiently as possible with more than one jurisdiction. What issues you think we should be thinking about from a policy perspective, but also um, how we can create an environment to trial cross-border solutions. So as I say, the deadline for that consultation is the 14th of October, um, and we love to hear people's feedback. Um, if you've got any views or you want to get involved, get in touch with us. It's gfin at fca.org.uk. If you do want to go back and listen to that episode, which you mentioned earlier, it is episode 182. Uh, We had an exclusive with aforementioned Chris Woolard from the FCA talking about the sandbox.
So I will move us on to the next story, but not away from regulation, because, you know, the next story is that the US, uh, US fintechs are nervous about the new f- federal fintech charter. So this is a story from Reuters. And the headline is that fintechs sound cautious note on offer of US bank charter. So we uh, we went through this quite a lot um, in quite a lot of detail two weeks ago, I think, and we had two excellent regtech specialists. So please go back and listen to that one if you want more detail. But basically, um, the specialist fintech charter was announced last month by one of the the US regulators called the Office of the Controller of the Currency or the OCC. Um, and it said it would accept applications for special purpose banking licenses. So again, everything is caveated uh, for some types of fintech that do businesses outside that do business, sorry, outside the traditional banking system. If they did achieve the license, they could operate nationwide rather than having to have a patchwork of state specific licenses. Um, however, most are bulking at the requirement that companies provide detail on how they would navigate financial stress. So that was always in the draft legislation. And um, it's come out and they've, they've sort of left it in there in the final uh, publication if you like. And um, even banks find that hard work. So how is a small business, a startup going to manage it? Um, I think there's also uh, anxiety, it sounds like from the Reuters article about the lawsuits ongoing. So a lot of states said they're going to sue the OCC because basically they don't like having their toes stepped on. And the long story short is that nobody really wants to go first. Well, you'd be walking into the fire, wouldn't you? I mean, compare this with the last story where there's uh, you know really clear uh, kind of outreach from regulators to become uh, a regulated entity within a jurisdiction with clear fintech licensing or clear licensing for you know, crowdfunding or peer-to-peer lending or payments or whatever it may be. This is kind of the opposite. There's so much uncertainty. Uh, there's active lawsuits. You've got states coming out and saying, we don't like sandboxes there for children. And you're going to go apply for a license in that climate? Like, I can see why they're cautious. That's like a harsh burn. Like, yeah. Uh, oh. Like, to, like, you know, sandboxes are for children. Like, that's, uh, like, it really does start to feel like a little bit Dallasy, doesn't it? Yeah. Right? Uh, it feels very combative as well. And then this is not unusual to those of us who understand how regulators work in the US. They're all very proud of their piece of turf and they don't like anybody stepping on it. I was speaking to a venture capital firm last week and they, I was speaking about this with them and they were saying that what they've heard is, a lot of people don't want to be the first one because they're too afraid that if they go for this special charter and go countrywide, that then if it then fails and they have to start thinking about what specific states want, they're really going to come up against bigger obstacles than they would have done before than going the state-by-state state route that they currently yeah. have to do. Yeah, it's, it's quite a terrifying proposition. Like you say, nobody ever really wants to be first, are they, on that one? Like, Can you imagine being in a situation, though, where like the PRA was suing the FCA? You know I mean, like, <laughs> I just don't, it doesn't, it makes or, your mind or, or boggle. Or the West Yorkshire it? version of the PRA <laughs> was suing the, the London version of the PRA. Like, it, it's really sort of, because of the, at the state level, it's, it's kind of, uh, but it, but I guess the, the flip side of that is, you know, maybe the, the brave that do follow this path or um, do start to do stuff in a different route maybe it does create some opportunity like yes you're potentially creating some attack surface to be sued but it's a sign you know in a climate of deregulation in the u.s in a climate where frankly the venture capital has been a lot more effective than it has been in europe for for many decades um, where innovation and entrepreneurship has been really quite successful you know maybe this is just that little bit of light that they needed to start seeing more things come through yeah i mean i i I speak to a lot of u.s fintechs in my uh you know 
day to day as I cook up, you know, day to day job. I actually have a real job. Aside from this, I forget that sometimes. I know. And they are they're cautiously optimistic, but it's exactly as you said. You know, they don't want to be the ones that go first. You know, they've already got some regulations. And I think for me, the point that um, Emily made is very pertinent. You know, we in we have EU wide legislation, and technically, if you have one license, you're allowed to operate across the EU. Except certain countries have done what's called gold plating it. So, for example, if you do crowdfunding or a peer to peer lending, you know, you're fine in the UK until you get to Germany and they have a completely different set of limits. So it's exactly that. You have to go through a different set of hoops to, to please that regulator. And so I think it works for some people, um, which is probably why they've gone for a small subsection of fintechs to start with. I'm going to be really sad if this falls flat on its face. Really, I am. Yeah. And I think also with peer-to-peer lending firms in particular, when they're thinking about this special charter, it might even herald a way for them to do better than the lending firms of yore where we saw some try and go public and it didn't work and in the UK especially peer-to-peer lending's really really taken off and it'd be lovely to see that happen in the US too because I think there's a real dearth there compared to what the success we've achieved in this country so agree but welcome to the wacky world of state and federal law I guess in the US and uh, but it's from the outside looking in it just looks like the US is is a, a really hard place to do innovation but this is really neat. But I think the important thing for this is the OCC. It's a Trump nominee, is it? Who's who's running that as well? Yeah. So it's interesting. I think so. The 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 Trump nominee um, is the guy who's running the Treasury, who who recommended the OCC be allowed to do it. The OCC have wanted to do this for a while. I basically. What Trump wants is as little regulation as possible. And he has this theory that if uh, the state, if he can do a federal uh, legislation, then they don't need the state by state stuff, which is partly why the state regulators, especially in New York, which I don't know, but I imagine is fairly a Democrat state um, is going. Nope, no, you don't. This is our territory. So but I'm sorry as well. Politics. Yeah, I'm sorry. Is, is, is no one doing? Are you down with OCC? Oh, uh, we, we did that. Yeah, uh, you know me. <laughs> Next week on RegTech Insider. Oh, don't even, if you said that, that's it. I'm going to bid for that now. It's a podcast that's coming coming soon. In the meantime, uh, if you are listening to us from the US or anywhere else for that matter, and you are interested in the US fintech scene, then you really, really do need our competitor insights platform. You need it. You definitely you do. do. It's amazing. It's called 11FS Pulse. Uh, it lets you watch thousands of on-demand videos of real customer journeys, of real customer accounts, but with like personal details blocked out. We're not, we're not that shady. Um, including great US brands like Venmo, Robinhood, Thin by Chase, and lots, lots more. Um, we like to call it the Netflix for fintech. So to find out more, check out 11fs.com forward slash pulse. And binge on some fintech. I'm all about that. Honestly, I do for hours. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when I fall into those data holes, it's, it's problematic. Our next story today is sticking with regulation because, again, me. So this is Standard Charter Bank's been out talking about its application for a virtual banking license. So this story comes from the South China Morning Post. Um, Standard Chartered Bank uh, will... It's viewing um, the Hong Kong, uh, the Monetary Authority of Hong Kong's virtual bank license as a ticket to new business worldwide. So Standard Charter, which was the first traditional bank in the city to apply for the license, uh, hopes it will open up new areas of growth both in the city and overseas. Um, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, or the HKMA, is poised to issue the first virtual licenses by the end of the year as part of a bid to promote fintech and tap into the growing trend for online finance. So 60 other companies have already applied ahead of the deadline of 31st of August. But interestingly, no other traditional banks as yet. 
thought six zero yes wow and and some and from what i recall not all of them are, are either chinese or based in hong kong so i believe that there are some british fintechs who are looking into this as well i think there are some pretty big tech firms in there sort of rumors believed as well so it's uh, it's going to be super interesting to see who actually gets to you know gets to market i think um you know original days of the the sort of relaxation of um, regulation within the uk there was all sorts of wild rumors about who was sort of going for those licenses um so yeah it'll be interesting to see how many of the 60 get through the through the mixer it makes me think of nigeria and 34 e-money licenses and there are now 34 e-money platforms out there all competing for business sounds like a nightmare busy (laughs) (laughs) it does but then um the new bank startup unit i think in the uk had something like 120 odd or some some you know so i don't know what the exact number was but it was a high number and of those uh you know you've only really seen four or five emerge as being major platforms that have ended up getting a new banking license there's something to be said for what does a virtual banking license mean oh so it's a virtual bank you can't have a branch you have to be completely digital. So that's the definition piece. Yeah. And, and I guess your risk and requirements and then the customers you're expected to go after may, might be different. Uh, it's, it's different to a standard banking license, definitely. Um, I do not know, appallingly, the full terms and conditions off the top of my head. It's been replaced with that 222-page uh, US report. but um, they, I'm really it, disappointed in you, Sarah. Have you not read this one in detail as well? I have, but I've forgotten bits of it. Oh. I apologise. I'll go away and do my homework next time. But it is the idea of it is it, it is definitely taking uh, taking the lead from the FCA with their kind of, well, let's change things up a bit. Let's make it easier. Um, I don't know. Like... I, uh, I am pleased to see some of the big guys joining in as well. I'm pleased to, to see you know, them saying, OK, well, we're going to try this as well. Because the other option is they sit back up and rest on their laurels and go, nah, it's fine, we got this. And that's that's the last thing you really want to see. You want to see them trying really hard to you know serve their customers better as well. <laughs> Did anybody else have anything they wanted to say on that one? Any thoughts about... I think it's interesting, like you say, I think you've got big companies actually going into this stuff. I think um, similar to what we sort of saw really with some of the sandbox stuff originally with the FCA, actually, I wonder how many really big organizations kind of see this as an opportunity to do um, to allow them to think differently about some of their internal processes and practices. You know, how often have we heard, you know, people from the FCA talk about the cultural opportunity that something like the sandbox or something like these uh, virtual banking licenses really offer because if you can really sort of push your organization to do things differently then actually big organizations have everything in their favor you know i still i always kind of bet on the uh, the one with all the money and all the customers type thing and like in this instance you've got really big organizations doing something fun and not to preempt a later article but i mean first direct is a virtual bank in the uk with no branches I guess, and and they've come top in the customer care. So moving away from regulation, we'd be pleased to hear, actually, well, no, not quite, but it's slipping sideways into (laughs) China. So after public outcry, Beijing says it will ban new online lending platforms. Uh, So Chinese authorities laid out 10 measures to increase restrictions on the online peer-to-peer lending sector. Um, That's according to the state-run news agency, I'm going to say this, it's probably wrong, Jinhua. I think that was pretty good. I'm just going to go with it until yeah. somebody writes in. Um, the story was uh, reported uh, in, in the Western World by CNBC. The planned steps include banning new online lending platforms and increasing legal punishment um, on operators of fraudulent schemes, the report says. So a lack of regulation in the sector uh, resulted in a surge of platforms that peaked about 3,500 in 2015. Roughly half have closed since due to a combination of... Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a few things, you know, the, some of it is fraud. They just weren't operating legally. Some of it is that China introduced new 
rules uh, about 18 months ago, well, said they were going to, and the, the smaller players just can't comply with them, so they've had to close down. Um, and also, all the bad press has caused a complete rush on them. And of course, peer-to-peer lending, as I'm sure Emily will tell us, does not work when you've only got one side of the peer involved. Um, it's very much a supply and demand business. So yeah, any any other thoughts about this one? Yeah, I mean, I remember reading actually, before this was announced a few weeks ago, the FT did a great piece on Chinese peer-to-peer lenders. And they were talking about how there were stadiums being put up as places for people who had complaints against these firms to go and make their complaints. The kinds of things you hear about happening when there's a flood or a natural disaster, that was happening for the peer-to-peer lending industry in China. And so hearing this today, it kind of makes you, it's moving it on slightly, but the panic is obviously still there. And the context here is, you know, as we said on After Dark 6, the peer-to-peer lending wasn't necessarily peer-to-peer lending that we would understand in the UK or in the US market. It was just some kind of lending or some kind of business that would take your finances and pretend to help you save. And it wasn't clear if it was a scam or not. And you've got to put this in the context of the Chinese market that's been going through hyper growth for 20 plus years. There's a massive need for capital investment at the small business level. The big traditional banks weren't doing it. So anybody that can provide some form of capital, there's huge demand and huge need for that in the market. So you can see where these things took off. And it doesn't surprise me then that this sort of thing, you know, China just happens at a completely different scale. So when things go wrong, they go wrong at a different scale. <laughs> God, do they go wrong. <laughs> yeah, they really do. You need a football stadium to deal with it rather than four angry people in Wiltshire with a pitchfork. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, some of those firms I remember reading had the oddest names. You'd think you were looking at like an app store for iPhone games, things about cats like Meow Meow or something like that. I remember reading. Um, I want to learn from Meow Meow. That sounds I know, amazing. It sounds exciting, I want to write Meow. It? I <laughs> Very good. So this is a big thing actually a big problem that's starting to emerge in, in East Africa as well. Um, with the emergence of smartphones, there's been an awful lot of smartphone lending-based apps. We created Mshuari back in 2012 via a Vodafone CBA partnership, and it was one of the first digital loans of the, of the time. But it's kind of changed the whole sphere there. And and now the with smartphones are coming and smartphones are there, we've got an awful lot of people scraping data off phones to create alternate credit scores, create loans. And people are just taking loans off one to pay off the next, to pay off the next, to pay off the next. And they're ending up with bad credit for $2. The loans are tiny, but they are creating an an infrastructural problem now in Kenya. And I think the real consequence on people's lives, the human cost of that is is shambolic. And this is why, again, you know, the first three stories are all about regulation, but there's a need for this stuff. And I think there's an interesting kind of semi-summary in my mind at the moment about the need for if we can bring down the costs of regulation, we can increase financial inclusion. But actually, we shouldn't just be purely deregulating. It's about how can we have the right, appropriate level of uh, protection for the customer vulnerable. Customer protection is super important. But customer protection doesn't have to mean paper forms yeah, and process. No, no. <laughs> it can mean something else. And I think that imagination that you get from being able to observe innovation with a sandbox, I think, is is really compelling and powerful. But the consequences of not having a sandbox, the consequences of not even effectively managing massive growth in your economy... The, you know, can be real on people's lives. I mean, it's, it's infrastructural too. You need financial education for it to work. 
right? Yeah, yeah. You you need to start at that place, not at the place that you can have a loan. Yeah, and, and, and you saw people on both sides of this, but you saw people putting their entire life savings into these platforms, you yeah. know, their entire life savings into one platform. You know, on the business side of it, the result of uh, one of these platforms collapsing was the collapse of a, a chain of uh, corner shops because they only had one investor. That one investor turned out to be running one of these fraudulent platforms, which was in fact a Ponzi scheme. So, you know, the, the platform goes down, he gets arrested, but actually an entire shop chain goes bust as well. And that's what impact does that have on people's lives? That's jobs. That's, that's you know, people who are accessing those facilities. So um, a, a lesson, a, a warning to us all, I think, in that one. All right, I'll put you out of your misery. We'll move on to something that isn't regulation. So we are moving on to my second favorite topic, which is Australia. I didn't actually pick the stories this week. Our excellent producer, Laura, did, but these are fabulous. Um, so the next story comes from Finextra. It is that Neobank Zinja, uh, Australian Neobank Zinja, is going to implement uh, SAP Core to take on Australia's big four. I can already see Andy giggling in the corner. The uh, Australian mobile banking startup has selected the SAP Cloud for banking platform to try and take on the uh, the big four banks. As anybody who listens to me regularly will know, Australia only has four banks because legally they can only have four banks until quite recently, and that is problematic to say the least. Um, these guys uh, have decided to go with SAP because they reckon it will give them um, a faster time to market basically it'll enable rapid customer onboarding uh, real-time risk and financial assessment um it'll also they say again uh, equip it for open banking rules which come into force in the country in 2020 zinja is planning to raise a third of 20 million to support its entry into the banking market and uh, eric wilson the founder and ceo said the speed and flexibility of the new cloud-based core banking platform gives us the potential to revolutionize banking Andy, off you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great press release for SAP, but it's not the underlying tech that's going to attract your customers, is it? I mean, I'm sure BrewDog have got an absolutely fantastic ERP system, but if the beer's <laughs> crap, I'm not buying. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's going to come down to what's your customer offering, and this doesn't tell me anything about their customer offering. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting move. Um, it's an interesting decision. We actually interviewed Zinger um yeah, so it's a really interesting decision, I think, from those of us who study the challenger bank space quite a lot. Uh, certainly in the UK, we've seen a lot of the challenger banks decide to build their own tech stack um, because they all say it makes their lives easier. You know, they can have better control. And to Andy's point, they can have full control over their customers' end-to-end journey. So if something goes wrong, they know what's gone wrong. They can tell their customers instantly, and then they can uh, they can keep them updated as they fix it. And that kind of like real-time notification of, we're really sorry, your car's not working. It's because a mouse chewed through a cable in our server room and we're going to fix it right now but we know that rather than visa which goes out and then like three days later they're like we think somebody unplugged something so i think for me it's a really interesting decision given the benefits that we've seen other banks have by building their own software but it takes time right that is exactly so i built mpesa took time to get it to the place where it was full enough i was there for four years and then i moved away and i started from zero again and i built another platform in my startup and I wasn't happy with the amount of features in it for two years. Now, we didn't have Clyde. <laughs> it was pre-Clyde. Um, but it does take time to build enough. And I, and I think it comes back to where you want to differentiate, doesn't it? Mm. Like, I, I can hardly believe I'm saying these words, if I'm honest with you. But actually being in a situation where, like, I think SAP have a bad rep. And it's weird because like, I think SAP gets like a bad rep because everybody says SAP in the context of a legacy system. But actually some of the stuff that SAP and Oracle and other big tech firms actually are creating like today, the new stuff is not bad. Like they create good technology and move forwards. And it's, I think, you know, me and you and Simon uh, have talked about this before, but actually 
it kind of depends on what the positioning that you're competing with. So, you know, given the environment within uh, Australia and where those big four banks actually are, and I think the big four banks own like 20 brands, don't they? So, yeah. you know, this is the sort of sort of slightly perverse thing there and here is that, you know, and having worked at Lloyd's, you can go and talk to the normal man on the street and they don't get that Halifax and Bank of Scotland are owned by Lloyd's. They get that Lloyd's is owned by Lloyd's. Mm-hmm. So actually, like for the for the customer on the street, they think they're getting competition. They think they've got twenty brands, even though it's like four big companies that kind of own the whole thing, you know. Um, but you know, on the SAP point, I think um, I think it's an interesting one because people presume you know an SAP system is an old system. But this is sort of new technology that they're pushing stuff forwards with. That is, you know, it is cloud-based. It is moving the the kind of agenda forward in terms of the technology. But I, I do think there's a there is a weird like they probably need to work on naming conventions. I'm not sure necessarily calling uh, you know something the uh, the the SAP system is going to be doing them any favors. Really, it's thinking about branding and strategy. On it's that interesting side they didn't release a sub-brand or something that sounds and feels newer. But it's also interesting that um, of course uh, the founder of both Met, uh, Metro and Atom. Uh, has now uh, is Antti Thompson is it? Yes. I said his name right um, is founding 86400 in the Australian market and he has a track record of uh, implementing traditional core banking systems albeit a new version of them with a brand strategy around it And but it's that it's that relative position though isn't it like actually if you if you're trying to be better than the big four then it's one thing and actually maybe that in some instances that's as, that's kind of enough isn't it actually you know what we've seen with Metro is better branch based banking what we've seen with Atom is better you know, digital banking in the context of actually what digital banking is for a big bank. Mm-hmm. That's a very different game to what I think the I thought Zinja were were sort of playing to, which was more of the the Monzo Starling reinvent banking type vibe. Mm-hmm. So it'd be really interesting to see what they kind of come out with. I, I guess it's um I guess we've had Eric on the show who's the CEO, I think it was episode one six four. Yeah. Um like maybe, I don't know, six, seven weeks ago or something. Uh, and actually, the aspiration that he was painting was a lot grander than just better banking. I, I would encourage you to go listen to 164. I did that interview, and and that's exactly it. There was a big aspiration there about reinventing banking. And there's something about um, vendor lock-in, potentially, that's a risk. Um, and there's something about using open source tools and the flexibility you get there. Open source tools don't guarantee you flexibility. And maybe um, you know with, with a vendor solution, you do get all of these bits that have been approved by a regulator in your market before. You get a lot of comfort with, with that sort of stuff, but maybe ninety percent of it you don't need. Mm. So, um, but, it, it was but it's definitely um, it's definitely moving. I think moving away from that narrative that unless you build it yourself, it's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually sort of think the um, you know we've had um, sort of many conversations with people like Mikhail Panovich before, who was mm-hmm. one of the guys who led the transformation for M Bank. You know, those guys had such an old core banking system; it was like a decommissioned, de-supported, mm-hmm. you know dehuman kind of setup in terms of everything that they had and they created one of the most innovative banks that there was just because of how they sort of went about doing it so I, th- I think it's one of those ones it's um it ain't what you do it's the way that you do it right yeah and i, th- I think that's that's sort of the point here i mean you, you can tell that that you guys have spent a lot of time thinking about this and oh, looking yeah. into i love me some core banking exactly <laughs> um and i think the, the point that sort of stands at the end of it which you know andy made and 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 leslie and um, alluded to is that actually what matters at the end of the day is what you're going to deliver and if you can deliver 
deliver an excellent competitive bank to customers that they love and that treats them well, and you've done that with you know a, a, a third party supplier behind your core banking, then that's not a problem. Um, you know, I really don't care how you do it if you can do it well, and what you get in Australia finally is some competition, and finally banks that treat their customers well, then I don't care. Use all the third parties you like. Go out there, have you know Oracle, SAP, thrones in my BM. You know, I don't mind. I don't care which cloud provider Netflix uses. I care if they get the latest um, binge series, right? It's really about service. And this was kind of your point, Andy, isn't it? Um, I, I did read this and think it's like gluing feathers to your arms to compete with an aeroplane. I think that's a, a gut reaction. I think on, on balance, like you've got to consider the Australian market. You've got to consider the need for a compelling proposition in the market. And really, it's about can it be configurable? Can it be real time? Can it be contextual? Can it be intelligent? Those set of requirements may be available in a modern core architecture. Even if it's provided by a traditional vendor or a new vendor, it's can it be those things? Can it be digitally rich? A very long story for another day was one of my original in-college jobs was implementing SAP R3. Uh, into a dentistry chain. <laughs> Random. Sorry. And I'll definitely tell that story at another point. <laughs> um, and on that note, we are going to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. At 11FS, we build truly digital products and services for clients big and small, and we are hiring. So if you want to play a part in shaping the future of financial services, head on over to 11FS.com and browse our vacancies. You can come and work with us. I promise you it is a lot of fun. Uh, So now on with the show. Our next story is from the FT. And the headline is African Economy, The Limits of Leapfrogging. So in the words of a World Bank study, countries can make a quick jump in economic development by harnessing technological innovation. So the term leapfrogging is often applied to Africa because of the widespread adoption of mobile phones. Um, Though it's also used to describe a path supposedly being charted by India, which is said to have skipped straight to a technology-driven economic model without the intensive manufacturing phase that spurred growth in Japan, South Korea, China, places like that. However, the the crux of this story is basically like that might sound really great that you can cut out a phase and go straight into huge growth. That the, there's a particular economist quote in the article who says the great gains in productivity um, in those places are often made not through the internet and mobile phones, which is what we see in Africa, but um, in technologies that we now take for granted, so indoor plumbing and roads, and that's something we're not seeing as much investment in in Africa, and certainly not as much um, technological uh, support for, for for those particular areas. Um, I mean, I think Leslie Ann, this is this is so so in your uh, on your wavelength right it's almost like you brought this article up just because i was coming in today we right? never do such a thing <laughs> no <laughs> i absolutely love this article when i read it this afternoon i hadn't seen it before and it made me think about all kinds of stuff um it's a very well considered piece it shows both sides of the argument pretty well um and it's right on both terms right there has been Fantastic stuff happened in Africa, but we're like 1% finished to coin a term. (laughs) 
I just so did a huge thumbs more. up, which again doesn't work on a podcast. So. <laughs> we need to get much more better, like better at that, don't we? We're, I'm failing with words right now, which uh, you know I'm just good with hand signs, but you know. You know. We'll we'll do a, a sign language podcast. Sounds good. Sorry, Leslie Ann. <laughs> the article goes through all kinds of of stuff that I talk a lot when I talk a lot about about Africa. I and mean, we we have done kind of cool stuff with tech in Africa, and there, it keeps on happening. Um, the mobile phone infrastructure leapfrogged the landlines. There are no landlines in Africa. The copper has been cut long ago. Um, there are solar panels connected to mobile money. And the decentralized infrastructure around solar panels is is there. It's real. It's all over Africa doing this, that and the other. There's no grid in the country. There is no card payment infrastructure beyond the 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 more touristy areas, the towns, the urban centers. But there is mobile money everywhere in branches and agents, especially when you go somewhere like like, like Kenya. And even more so, like data is now becoming the new thing, data pl- plans and, and 3G's there. It's leapfrogged broadband, but it's quite expensive. So now we're actually seeing a lot of innovation around TV white space and um, Facebook are flying their drones, Google are flying their balloons. And how do we get even cheaper data? Because yes, there is data a lot, but it's very expensive and there are ways to make it cheaper and, and, and there's ways to make it more prevalent everywhere. The countryside, it, it goes quickly to edge services back to GSM. Mm. I mean, I guess, sorry, I was just going to say the question there I had, I had for you, Leslie, and is like, well, that's all great, but what if I haven't got clean drinking water? You know, what? Well, right, exactly. how, how helpful is that? You know, and, and more than that, it's it's very agricultural economy and the yields of crops are low and, and technology does not fix this stuff. People fix this stuff by education. Sometimes technology could be an enabler. There are services out there doing like SMS education, and the other, but actually infrastructurally, you have to think about why the farming isn't beyond 19th century levels and, and how do you infrastructure to get better there? Um, so I 100% agree with the article's point is that technology does not solve all these issues. You can leapfrog, but you've got to consider that um, China was a very different ex- example because you've got this ultimate top-down authority that can make things happen with technology in a way that you just don't get in other economies. And it's manufacturing. Yeah. And that was the point of the article. It's like there is a manufacturing um, economy in, in China. Yeah, and, and in fact, in India as well. So what, what Massive, springs to yeah. mind there to me is, is like, uh, so one of the things that's really boomed in India is e-commerce and people buy things on their phones. But India can make things in country and also they have developed roads because they have this huge manufacturing industry. They have to be able to move parts uh, and, uh-huh. and supplies and things like, you know, um, supplies from different parts of the country, huge country around. So that manufacturing infrastructure has enabled the next step. And it's starting to happen in Africa now. Actually, there's an awful lot of Chinese investment in Africa. And the roads are getting so much better. But then you've got to remember that China's one country, India's one country, and Africa isn't one country. It's lots and lots and lots of countries with very different governments and regulations and all the rest of it, right? And you can't move stuff across the country in the same way. And and you've got to, every country's got to solve its own issues in its own way at the moment. And so, for example, me and my payments, somebody called me a payments wonk one day. I thought that was quite a good term for me. Payments is fragmented. So fintechs here in the UK aren't solving the problem of payments unless they talk about cryptocurrency. <laughs> in Africa, so many people running companies, they think 
payments equals fintech and they are trying to solve payment aggregation because it's still a very unsolved problem there's a lot enough of silos around so how do we move beyond that when we talk about technology is kind of what we need to think about it and one of the interesting things i've i've done quite a lot of work on islamic finance and obviously there's a huge muslim population in africa and a couple of the companies i've i've spoken to are doing amazing things with finance but finance for a greater purpose so lending farmers money so that they can buy a new whatever it is to give them access to the latest technology to enable them to, to farm more efficiently or, or better and or go, more in a safer and go way. go further than that. So the banks often give a loan for a tractor, but they expect the repayment terms to be pretty quick, right? But the guy has only got his own farm. So someone created Hello Tractor, Uber <laughs> for tractors. I love right? it. Yeah. It's an old business model. Contracting is an old business model. My grandfather was an agricultural contractor in Ireland, but they put a little bit of tech with it. And it means that a woman can turn up driving a tractor and you don't know until <gasps> a lady she driving arrives. a tractor. <laughs> right. So the technology has got its part to play, but actually the business, the service that you're creating is far bigger than that. And that helps with, you know, as talking about education as well, you know, cultural education and dissemination of ideas. And, you know, if you're, if what you're doing is providing one thing that helps another thing that, that falls onto a third thing, that's much more useful, some would say, than the aggregation of payments, which does have a place, but it's not going to help the, the continent. And I think we do. It's a, it's a very good point you made, Leslie Ann. We do. F- forget in the West Africa is a continent, yes. not a country. And there are, and uh, my geography is terrible. I have no idea how many individual countries there are, but an awful lot and an awful lot of different politics. And as I just mentioned, religions and currencies and beliefs. And I think also people forget that when you talk about money, you have to talk about culture because different cultures approaches to money and therefore approaches to fintech will always be different. Um, you can make such a mess of it if you don't take that into account. And an awful lot of the fintechs, there's no unicorn that comes out of Africa just yet. But as they try to move across borders, the challenges change and the cultural things are really important. So you, they end up having to change their business quite a bit beyond just changing the time zone on their product, right? It, it's it, They probably have to think about how do you take this, this product into another market? And it's not about the tech, it's about the market and the go-to-market, the, the strategies around partnerships, that kind of thing. Um, but there are some amazing startups out there. There's one called Pula. Pula doesn't provide an app, but they use technology to provide farming insurance. And they've the strap line on their website. We believe that today all tools exist for 1.5 billion farmers to do more than pray for rain. Amazing. It's insurance on seed and it comes packaged with the seeds. So as you, un- as you open your packet, there's a code that you, you SMS off and your farm is insured from that point because you open the seed packet at the side of the field and and location-based services get involved in that. And and that's not that doesn't require an iPhone, does it? That's human-centered design, right? And it's using satellite imagery and weather patterns to figure out whether to pay or not. Not whether the crop failed, whether the weather said that the crop might have failed. And that economies of scale can bring a different pattern. There's another one that is um, using imagery to provide credit scoring for banks to do these kind of loans that you talk about. There are so many good things happening out there with technology, but it's actually the business and the strategy and the services that are important, not the tech itself. And it's not a shiny app in the hands of a customer that we're talking about here. It's people who understand insurance, designing insurance for farmers. I think that's true 
and should be true really everywhere right and I, and I think this is a, a major thing that keeps being sort of forgotten when you know people kind of get into this sort of functionality arms race don't they you know we we very much sort of see big organizations fighting other organizations for doing a thing um, but actually that human-centered design you know really looking at services rather than products and really sort of developing in that that sense it just should be how it is isn't it it's just in this instance like the an entire crop in a in a field is the difference between somebody's entire livelihood for their family or it's a guy in shoreditch being able to kind of move forwards with uh, family planning or saving for a marriage or whatever type thing so but uh, you know the context is similar really technology isn't the isn't a panacea of a fix this is a enabler that's exactly. all it is right and that's the whole point of the article actually the point he makes at the end is enabler and he uses a quote from from bill gates at one point in the article he says um bill says no one can suggest that great technology is in any way a substitute for good governance. Certainly don't think giving everyone computers helps malaria or solves the problem of the teacher not being there or not having a schoolroom, right? There's still some infrastructural problems there. But along the way, technology is an enabler. It really is. It, it, it can make change. It can make a difference. So moving from, um, you know, a, a quite an inspiring concept over to America. <laughs> <laughs> Which has a concept. <laughs> Um, so the next story is from... We love you, American listeners. Yeah, we love the American listeners, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The next story comes from CNBC. And Square's stock jumped to an all-time high after their cash app downloads surpassed PayPal's Venmo downloads. So um, the cumulative... And I, I love a good data point. I can't, I can't bear a story which doesn't have a good data point. So cumulative downloads of Square's cash app are now greater than those of PayPal's Venmo for the first time after a monster July. Um, Square Cash is looking at... 33.5 million downloads in total uh, of you know of all time versus 32.9 million for Venmo. Um, and we, you know when you consider that Venmo has been around a hell of a lot longer, that's that's really quite impressive. In June 2018, Cash App customers spent 250 million dollars with the Cash Card. So that's the card that accompanies the app, um, and that's nearly tripled since December 2017. The interesting thing for, for, for a lot of people is that people are using Square Cash instead of a bank account. So that that card point is actually really important here because they're actually using it instead of a, a bank provided uh, account it's an interesting beachhead like the, there have been a lot of examples where people have said we're going to start doing peer-to-peer -peer payments and then we'll offer more services and it's like yeah go on then and they never do they've done it they've got the numbers to back it up and they're publishing the numbers and the interesting thing about the square cash app is how brutally simple the interface oh, is. you love it don't you I love am, it i'm absolutely enamored by the brutal simplicity of this app and uh ross gert and i when we were first playing with the app it was just like it's so unbelievably simple all you can see is numbers and send like but actually as a as a first time user that draws you in but behind that there's a lot of richness behind that it really solves a problem for me in a non-friction based way it's like oh i immediately get what this app is for and now i can use it for other things and here's the card i i think uh, jack dorsey has had a real slow burner when they did the ipo you know square was kind of nowhere they i think halved in value at ipo and they've slowly slowly made a bit of a comeback and i'm, I'm quite happy to see it frankly well i'd say that um the idea that like you said sarah that people are using the cards more and more as actual cards really makes me feel quite 
prosperous about the state of um, American users in fintech because I I mean I remember reading earlier this month that 7-Eleven now supports Apple Pay and I was mm. just in such shock that it was an <laughs> announcement that a store supports Apple Pay because here it's so ubiquitous mm-hmm. and so the fact that American users are really starting to embrace a fintech player and using it as a method of payment in stores hopefully I mean one day they'll get contactless who knows but <laughs> well wouldn't hold your breath for that <laughs> yeah I mean I'm hoping but yeah <laughs> I did a little bit of work with an American um, credit union and I could see so many parallels with, with the emerging markets world. There's plenty of people who need services like Square mm-hmm. and they, they need Amazon Cash and they need all these services that help them get their jobs done. And they haven't quite figured out how a bank fits in that. And sometimes the banks are too complex. And Well, but I, I guess if the regulators are all suing each other, then they've got no fi- <laughs> no time to kind of really deliver the services that actually people need. Because I think even Jack Dorsey came out recently and said they were they were surprised how many people are actually using this as a as a yeah. current account. You know, but, it's, uh, sorry, a checking account. I mean, what I found when I used to do a lot more global fintech was that most American digital banking startups that I was writing about were so often targeting um, financial inclusion they're targeting the underbanked the unbanked students who don't have access to good capital or good credit ratings a lot heavier than we do in the uk and it's starting to get some attention here but it was a really big thing in the us and i mean square cash and this story is a really good example of that i think the other thing is as well this this is the, the joy and the beauty of square cash is that brings the two things together so it brings the people who just want to be able to send money to each other and like maybe see how much money they've got in their account with the people who actually can't go and get a bank account from wells fargo or city or whoever or chase or whoever it is because you know for whatever reason they are excluded and the interesting th- thing for me is that they have sort of played with the idea of a banking license but right now they don't need one right now they are perfectly able to hold the cash use it as a card you know and and then on top of that provide those value-added services those this is how much you spent this is you know how much so you received and we talked out. about that recently didn't we they they actually pulled out of applying for a banking application process didn't they yeah so they were going to go for what's called oh this is, this is back to reg tech geeks era um, they were going to go for what's called an industrial it was an industrial banking charter i believe is the term and it's basically when non financial organizations can apply for a license none have been given in over 10 years so so walmart tried to get one and they were shut down and um square went for one and sofi went for one and in the end they sort of a lot of them pulled back and went actually this isn't for us but uh, to a certain extent and what we were talking about earlier was was good regulation and, and regulation that enables competition is is brilliant if in the u.s it's too complicated to get the regulation there's enough space for you to play without it then why not deliver those services and we tend to get very snippy on this podcast and in europe generally towards u.s fintech and haha look they don't have real-time payments yet but then when it comes to entrepreneurialism when it comes to delivering product i mean you've got to say the numbers here speak for themselves yes it's a bigger market but still like with a lot of regulatory challenges the entrepreneurialism to get this done and the sheer weight of building great product uh, can make a massive difference and it's solving a real problem not just in terms of that peer-to-peer money transfer but people without bank accounts and that needed to be solved yeah and i should point out that you know um, square is not unregulated they work with a bank which is very common in the u.s is for these startups whether it's square or somebody like chime or, or simple when it started um they have a very good relationship with a bank which is insured so the bank is insuring your deposits and this is literally mobile money right yeah, it's exactly. exactly what we were doing at impesa in 2005 so, th- so there's actually no need for 
them to get a license yeah. when their relationship with that bank is very much a case of they're piggybacking off that license. And as long as they play by the rules, they're happy to let them do that. So you don't really have as much of that conversation that you might have, which is where, oh, God, their system's gone down. It's affected us. Whose fault is it? Who's to blame? These relationships are, are set up like this. So, you know, you square, go do what you want, you know, make it good, make some money and we'll hold the deposits, we'll pay the insurance and we'll make sure that you're operating within the law. And actually, if that's working for now, go with. I mean, yeah, there are European fintechs doing exactly the same. There's a payments app in France called Lydia Mm -hmm. that raised quite a lot of money earlier this year and they're doing really well. They're probably the next biggest um, like mobile payments app compared to Revolut in that country with young people. And they've openly said like, we don't want a banking license. We don't want to be a bank. We're happy as we are because we're surviving as we are. We're doing really well as we are. It enables us to get almost get better partnerships because we're able to be more free with how we work. So, And we see that in the UK with the business banks actually so Tide has done a very similar mm-hmm. uh, taken a very similar approach mm. I was going to say something similar and like Monzo's go to market was this you know we've seen you know Revolut are saying that they don't really need that situation but I, I guess it's one of those ones is is like controlling uh, you know anything where you uh, your beachhead you know your beachhead works until you get killed killed on the beach right so mm-hmm. you know being in a situation where actually you're in a situation where you can really effectively control your costs and control your uh, your provision of service which is why really people have come out and gone actually you know Revolut have come out and gone actually we need to be in a situation where we're owning our payment processing mm-hmm. similar to what uh, Monzo did with GPS actually being in a situation where you're in control of your own destiny actually is uh, and control of the cost structure around your uh, cost per customer you know I think those things are really strong drivers because especially in a market where you've got um, high competition you know it really comes back to who can serve the customer the best for the lowest cost uh, and the delta between those two things is actually going to be the where where people win or lose um, because you know we've seen it in the UK particularly people can uh, you know, VC arbitrage for a certain period of time, but actually at some point people are going to want to see, um, you know, come back on this stuff. Um, and particularly in the US, you know, the, I think you said earlier on, Simon, the, the VC market in the US is actually pretty uh, advanced. But the advancement in that means you've got a five-year window of returns. That means you better get your shit together in five years. Not <laughs> you've got to deliver a return. And well, Square are a public company as well, so they don't even have that luxury necessarily. But the the question that struck me is, like, how does this position them against or alongside the existing incumbent large banks in the US or providers that are going after the subprime market because you know to the cost structure point if they've got a bank partner behind them you've got to think they're probably not doing this at a, at a margin and maybe they're even losing money if that's the case then how are they going to deliver in the future and, how, and what's their time horizon look like to get to you know profitability on this uh, this segment or do they need profitability in the short term and this is about growing users and they're playing a really long game here but but I think it's interesting though like you you see you see so many similarities between the US market structure and the go-to-market and the African go-to-market mm-hmm. structure and the, you know, so like as in uh, the ways in which you're talking about multiple countries within the continent, really the America acts like it's multiple countries. Like we told, we call them states, but really they are countries. Like this is uh, a United States of America type vibe where- The investor you know, model is so different though. Every American startup seems to be able to get away with customer acquisition as a strategy and they don't need to make money for a long time. I would say that we don't get away with that in the African context. It's more like, when will we make revenue? Sure. But uh, but I think that's, I think the abundance of disposable VC money Mm. 
is what allows that to sort of permeate to be honest with you and actually you you know you kind of see the it's the american dream right you kind of see the ability to invest and for startups to bloom but you've got a three-year horizon based on the you know series a to return what you return but you know a lot of uh, you know i think it's it's widely unpublished how many companies have started and fail in the u.s um but that model is okay you know and it, but the difference yeah, is is like if okay. it if yeah. it if it happens in the u.s people move on to start the new thing if they happen in africa people die well or, or they just don't get the money in the first place actually the money's mm-hmm. not available so the big companies can do it like the telcos they can have a good go at it but the startups are literally bootstrapping their life mm. which is why they're doing payments ag- aggregation mm. they can make a little tiny bit of money or they they go and they do some contracting and they do this other thing on the side it's a different model mm. there's an awful lot of conversation about the lack of VC investment in Africa and um, there's an awful lot of new conversation around how do we get more investment and impact investors I think the thing we also can't forget is that Square is neither VC back nor a startup Square is huge it's a public company and it's got a lot of money behind it so whilst we are sitting here sort of comparing it to if you want to say like chime or even simple in the old days that's actually not true comparing it to venmo is a much more realistic comparison because both of them are owned and run by huge huge companies that that most people can only dream of and both paypal and square don't necessarily have cash to burn but they certainly have cash to play with in the same way as a vc-backed company might i think i think my point though is that i think it's the fat in the system that actually allows the operating run rate not to be a problem in the US in the same way as actually it would be in Africa, you know, or even in in the UK, actually, where, you know, when Monzo took their cost per serve for customer from £60 to £5, and I've just made up two numbers, that sounds familiar to me. That's what Tom said. Nailed it. If there's enough money floating around the system in terms of the um, profitability of customers in the US, that means it doesn't matter if you sit on somebody else's rails then that's acceptable, right? It kind of comes back to a similar point around the technological outset of SAP might be good enough in the Australia market for, you know, a challenger to kind of come into the market type thing. It might not be in other geographies where more advanced things are happening. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting move. I think we're just going to have to keep an eye on this one. Um, you know, I can say that celebrities I've never heard of are endorsing Square Cash, which means instantly that it's going to do really, really well. I really want to hear you read the names of celebrities that you've never heard of. This could be quite a fun segment. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> I, we, we definitely keep coming back to Jack Dorsey's doing a good job. Like, bizarrely, like, the return of Jack Dorsey to really sort of pushing Twitter, Twitter's doing a lot better. Like, the share price is doing well, the features and functionality, like, what we're seeing now with Square and the profitability of the company and the moves that it's making. Like, for all of the, and I, and I have to say, when I saw him at Money 2020, I was pretty underwhelmed in terms of the presentation, but dude, Clearly a good CEO, so well done. Something we can, uh, well, some of us can aspire to. I'm not a CEO is why I said that. Like, <laughs> and I never will be, so, you know, that's the end of that. Well, I don't know, don't um, count yourself out just yet. David's, David likes cakes. <laughs> I, I think you want to go and start a, a bank in Australia by the sounds of things. So like, uh, I'm thinking about it. So our next story comes from the BBC, and uh, this is one that we can all really sink our teeth into as uh British consumers and British bank accounts. So um, the story is that RBS comes bottom of the bank league tables. So in a survey by GFK and published by the Competition and Markets Authority, customers were asked how likely they would be to recommend their bank, and this is um, major high street banks, not not uh, challenge banks, um, on a number of measures such as overall customer service, 
online and mobile banking, overdrafts and service in branch. RBS came last with less than half of its customers keen to recommend them. Uh, as Leslie Ann alluded to earlier, HSBC's first direct came top with 85%, which is really impressive because they've been up there for a while. Um, the rankings were published as RBS said it would pay a dividend to shareholders for the first time since the financial crisis. Um after it agreed to pay a, a huge fine um, in the US. So none of this sounds particularly good for RBS. I have to say I don't and never have banked with RBS. I do bank with First Direct and I love them. So, you know, go. Anybody who has thoughts, Andy's very so, well, for, for If you love banking and you love stats, this has been a few a good few weeks. With the cast <laughs> stuff coming out with this, this is going to be like the new league tables we're going to be tracking. So... Uh, I just, I suppose, just a couple of things that spring out. So it, it's no coincidence that First Direct and uh, Metro are the top two. You know, Metro in particular have really focused on customer service as a, as a differentiator. So, so they really they should be near the top. And pet customer service, even Metro, they do an excellent service for dogs, which everybody's <laughs> nodding at me. Honestly, they do. Look they, it up. They have a chief canine officer. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh my god, I want that job. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm actually a dog, up. so you probably yeah. don't. Oh. I'm looking at David and think we have some we have some candidates in the office. We need like one of those. Rocky, yeah. Suki, Absolutely. Jake I'm quite hairy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Andy, please finish up. Well, point. <laughs> I was just you know, uh, just you know, poor old RBS. So you know, let's 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 give the guys a break because if you look at NatWest, all right, you've got NatWest there in tenth. You know, basically, you're talking about the same bank with the same systems. You know, how much of this is really down to some of the, maybe some of the press coverage? I don't know, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think you can't discount that what people read in the press will have an impact on their opinion of their bank. So if people are reading things like, oh, RBS, you know, if, as well, we have to go back to David's point that people don't know that NetWest and RBS are the same group. So if people don't know that, you know, RBS paying a dividend to its shareholders also means that NetWest is also doing the same thing. Um Com- you can't discount it. I think the sad thing is the reality of this is it probably the way in which a call center talks to people and marketing. Because essentially Halifax, Lloyd's, Bank of Scotland are the same company. HSBC and First Direct are the same company, albeit a cheeky chappy northern. Uh, and I can say that as a somebody from Yorkshire. So don't judge me. No hate mail, please. Difference between HSBC and First Direct. Um, nationwide will hate being on here because it says bank rating and they're not a bank they're a building society uh, and well, Coventry's you know I mean? on there as well I know Close well it's, it's it's a it's just an interesting I, I I'm surprised you haven't said show me the data Sarah continually I, I would I would like them to show me the data I just I just enjoy it as for me actually it I would love to see the data and see what actually is going on there but actually for me it is um, a really good barometer of like the the public and we get into our little fintech bubble and we get in down to the nitty gritty of who's powering new banks and who's providing the software and what color the cards are but a lot of people out there do still think about banks in terms of well coventry or, or nationwide or first direct you know first direct and metro i mean metro is a very new brand to be to be doing so well when you think about the average british person but why are challenger banks not on here because some of the challenger banks now actually have more customers than these people i don't actually know the answer to that question again please show me the data if the competitions and markets authority wants to send me the data i will very happily get lost in it but just on the cons- uh, the customer service piece as well so uh, I won't say who I bank with, but uh, obviously we've in the oh, UK. Go we've, on. <laughs> Come on. We all have five or six as well, so you can, only, you can exactly. just name just one of them. There, there are a few, but let's just say... <laughs> just say what colour it is. It's, 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 it's kind of a blue. But, uh, oh. yeah, and, you know, we've just had, in the UK, we've just had a, a base rate rise, right? And uh, my phone pings and, you know, the Sky News or BBC News alert and comes up and says, right, there's a rate rise. 
pretty 20, 30 seconds after I get a text from the bank saying, right, you're on a tracker mortgage, you know, your rates are going to change. Oh, well, well, you know, poke me in the eye. Now, <laughs> I get that, you know, there's probably a regulatory issue there. And, and, you know, I checked that earlier. I think that text was on the 2nd of August, right? So what we, you know, two, three weeks later, I haven't had the text that says my saving account's going up. So Absolutely. I think that that is a really interesting point as well. Like whenever any of the interest rates rise, I sit there and look at my banks and I've got all the apps. I'm like, anybody? Anybody at all? No, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll just wait for that one. Um, I, I think a very that, long time. Yeah, yeah. I think customer sentiment is is always an interesting one, and it's um, it leads to I think a wider discussion about mm. what impacts people's perceptions. But we we have a lot. Of, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about uh, NPS. You know, I actually think it'd be really interesting to see the the NPS capability when we start seeing some of the uh, you know the challenger banks really kind of come into this. I think I've made the point. A bunch of times before that you know this is a percentage so you know i fundamentally mm-hmm. think we're going to start seeing a very different uh yeah. you know what i don't know i'm guessing given the metrics here but essentially what 85 percent to be first place means yeah. i think is fundamentally being reset so uh you know uh, you know give it 12 months when actually the the Monzos and the Revoluts of the world are kind of being represented in this type of stuff. And I think we see a very different place. Because if you were to look at the net promoter scores, the thing would be different, right? I mean, the net promoter scores of most of these banks is in the negative territory. Exactly. <laughs> it becomes yeah. a dual axis, think, doesn't it? Except so. I think for First Direct, actually. But interesting to your point there, David, if you talk about customer numbers, First Direct, Metro, Nationwide, Coventry and Santander, who are the top five, arguably have far fewer customers than the next one down, which is Barclays. Uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Give us the numbers and I'll come back and do another another bash at it. I'm going to move us on to, we have two and finally today, they just want me to read this out basically. So this story comes from uh, my old employer from Business Insider. Um, Playboy is reportedly suing a cryptocurrency platform. I don't know whether to bother with the rest of it. Okay, Playboy's parent company, Playboy Enterprises, is suing a Canadian cryptocurrency company called Global Blockchain Technologies, Block. Uh, alleging fraud and breach of contract, according to the LA Times. So in May, Block announced a partnership with Playboy's media platform. And I didn't really understand this, but it said, Block said that it had plans to integrate a token called the Vice Industry Token into Playboy TV's platform. So I get that. So that users could get paid in cryptocurrency to watch adult entertainment. And I check this, and this is right, and I don't understand that business model. <laughs> Basically, Playboy Enterprises is alleging that Block failed to live up to its end of the contract, as in the three months since the deal was made, Block has yet to integrate its tech into Playboy's platform, and that it also hasn't paid, and this is the crux of the matter, the $4 million it promised to pay Playboy as a part of the deal. So, wait, they were going to pay Playboy to be part of the deal. The, what, the users were going to get paid, and these guys somehow were going to make money out of that? Like... I, 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 mean, I, I assume there would be some kind of advertising revenue where Block would gain some of the revenue from people watching, just like on YouTube, where yeah. YouTubers get paid and off AdSense. It'd be a similar start to Thank that. you for the logical explanation, <laughs> because the rest of us are just sitting here going, oh. it, it does feel very sort of like Black Mirror, doesn't it? Essentially, somebody has to kind of watch, like keep their eyes open and watch an advert to then get paid for a thing. Monetizing attention. Yeah. Kind of thing. But also, if they're getting paid for this, then I genuinely question my career guidance counselor at some point down the line that said i needed a proper job because if you could essentially be paid to watch pornography then like 
fuck my life quite frankly you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, if you've paid any attention to what's going on in the crypto markets in the last couple of days i mean it's a massacre the um some of the coins are down 98 99 from their all-time highs and frankly this was long overdue there was a lot of crap out there um and uh, as a fan of uh, blockchains and tokens and the idea of crypto assets to see all of the crap go to almost zero is frankly a great thing but there is an element of human misery here in in that sort of um back Wash. You know, a lot of people had put real money into these tokens that were worth nothing, and you're seeing on Reddit now. You're seeing suicide helplines being posted. There's, there's, it, these scammers need to go away, and I'm glad it's coming out in the wash because hopefully there'll be less of these scammers in the future. Mm. But it, it feels like the um, the reckoning to a certain degree, doesn't it? Like this is the the tokening. It, yeah, this is the, <laughs> the 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 chill to kind of kill the cold type thing. You I know, think, so. I do also think that if Playboy thought that this was ever going to work in their favour, then that yeah. the more fool them as well. Whoever like, made that decision that like, oh, this token idea sounds like it's really going to work. <laughs> uh, they probably just saw the four million price tag and thought, oh, give it Some a go. Yeah, exactly. Four million dollars. <laughs> yeah, why not? And Fine. the people who watch my content will get paid. Yeah. To, to be honest though, if they if they actually feel like they've got grounds to sue them, then they've probably got. You know, I imagine this is not the first time that Playboy's had to sue somebody, so they've probably got quite <laughs> a good legal counsel. I imagine they have. Yeah. Yes. So, like, in the grounds of being able to kind of say there's something in this for us, then you know, see what I they mean, do. I mean, this seems more credible than the other case that emerged. I think yesterday morning with um, a guy in the US suing AT and T for more than two hundred million dollars because he lost his cryptocurrency. Really? Yeah. I, don't even I can't remember. Wow. I can't remember why he thinks AT and T are to blame. But apparently they are. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's, they've got some weak security that meant he could be like uh, somebody was able to crypto jack his phone or something through the airwaves. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he's got some uh, technical reason why somebody was able to hack him and he's blaming AT&T for it rather than his pro security or something else. I think we've got a show title. It's like everybody suing everybody, basically. <laughs> so. All right. Well, on that note, he wants a McAfee story. Go on then. Let's have yeah, another I, one. Some, I need some McAfee. It's Again? been a while. It's, it's I need McAfee. to get McAffeinated. It's <laughs> Simon's on fire. Oh, wow. Um it's McAfee and crypto. So um a few weeks so much ago goodness. we talked about John McAfee um uh, offering a huge prize for anybody who could hack his crypto wallet. And wasn't it completely unhackable and completely he unhackable. said nobody was going to hack it? Yeah, that's it that's was, the key point. Yeah. It was for his unhackable crypto wallet. Yeah. Like let's mention that. So this must be a good news story that nobody's hacked it, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just roll my eyes for anybody. I wish I wish there was a way to like communicate that um so the story is that a teenager hacked into john mcafee's unhackable crypto wallet and used it to play doom uh we discussed in a few shows back how mcafee had put up a twenty-five thousand dollar prize for anyone who could hack into his un- un- unhackable crypto wallet and prove they had access to the coins um the device was hacked into by a 15 year old security researcher who used the opportunity to port doom into the device but that means that bounty- the guy doesn't get the bounty because mcafee says the terms of the bounty mean that hacking into the device doesn't count you're only eligible if you're able to act Access the crypto coins it holds. So, like, I mean, surely hacking into the cloud where the coins are stored is something completely different to hacking into the unhackable wallet. Yeah, like you, you've that's managed a whole to break skill. in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The fact that the dude just decided to play Doom as well. Like, well, so, well done, yeah. Matt. Yeah. One of my like, favorite headlines was "Watch this 15-year-old play Doom on John McAfee's unhackable crypto wallet." I, 
it was like dancing. It was like he he pissed on his bonfire. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So, so my understanding of this is, is is somewhat is somewhat loose. But basically, does this mean that John McAfee paid for this guy to play Doom? I is that how it works? Is it like he used the? It's a weird bounty, but like there was a bug bounty, so you would have got twenty five thousand dollars. So I guess indirectly, but he ended up not paying, and he welched on the deal. So he he sucked. That's sad. So what, what? How did he play Doom? With, like, what did he use to play Doom? Then just the the, the coins inside it? Or? No, no. So the crypto wallet, I imagine, was a hardware exactly. wallet. So this will be a USB okay. key that would have stored those coins, and into that he will have injected some code that basically ran the game Doom. And so he was then playing Doom on a USB key or a device like that. I haven't actually seen this device. Right. And therefore, he was playing this video game inside this unhackable wallet by hacking the wallet. It's pretty right. cool. By hacking the hardware. It makes me want to go play Doom. Yeah. Yes, that was my immediate... This has everything. It has John McAfee. It has crypto. Yeah. It has video games. What more do you want? Waiting for the movie. Fest. Yeah. <laughs> There's a Netflix series coming for sure, isn't there? It has to be. Almost certainly. There is already one called Gringo, and it's brilliant. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to see someone do a follow-up, actually, on all the parody coins of political leaders, because I remember at the beginning of this year, there were parody coins out for Theresa May, Donald Trump, Putin coin. They were all doing really this well. This feels like a game for the next After Dark. Oh, God, like, yes. Real, There's a Theresa May coin. <laughs> yeah. Well, so last week, officially, the Theresa May coin is now on deadcoins.com. It's oh, dead. Dear. They've all crashed to like minimal, minimal value. Oh. We should we should match the you know political credibility of these political parties and their their leaders and on. yeah oh god like, it sounds like a complicated game it, it does yeah but I like those complicated games look out for After Dark <laughs> <laughs> and on that note I'm going to wrap things up uh, so thank you so much to all of our guests for joining us this evening uh, where can people find out more about you Leslie Ann uh, probably somewhere like Twitter Vaughn LA my name is quite unique too Leslie Ann Vaughn. Perfect. Um, how about you, Andy? Do you have Twitter or a website? Uh, Andy Nelson CGI on Twitter or just go to LinkedIn and Andy Nelson CGI there as well. Brilliant. And how about you, Emily? Um, so I'm Emily J. Nicole on Twitter. That's Nicole with two L's. And um, you can always read all my stories on cityam.com. And in the paper, by the way, if you're in London. But You know, that's the thing. I, d- I didn't realise that real papers were still a thing, so I've learned something today. They are, they are. And they're free sometimes too. <gasps> Mind blown. David Breer, what are you going to give us this week? David M. Breer on PUBG. Playing a lot of PUBG lately? Mm-hmm. Get me. Player on the Tencent stuff about PUBG was really interesting yesterday. Yeah, they've, like they've put so much into it, haven't they? And I, I do you know what that's it's been completely failed. I, I, well, well, I have to say, like the and they've started to move away from Tencent as the platform in terms of kind of what they're doing, haven't they? And I was always very skeptical about it because basically Tencent and giving all of your data essentially in terms of all the stuff that you're doing to a big Chinese company, but also it's a cool computer game, so I did it. I'm, I'm bringing this back round to where people can find you, David Embraer on PUBG. Perfect, <laughs> Simon. How about you? Watching David play PUBG from a different room uh, at Cy Taylor on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and as for me, I'm at Sarah Kishansky on Twitter and going for a little lie down. Please join in the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and to really make our weeks. Please leave us a review, preferably a nice one. Um, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>